Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love, and right now is no exception. We've heard you listeners and know you're counting on us to keep the baking conversation going strong, even in uncertain times. So that's what we intend to do. Today, we're starting with a review of shokupan, a version of Japanese milk bread, the sandwich bread that's taken the world by storm. Will it pass the test in our home kitchens? Then we'll introduce a copycat version of Japanese high-end chocolatier Royce's famous Nama chocolate truffles. Finally, we'll take a deep dive into mochi, that cute and tasty Japanese rice cake that kids love. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, back in last week's episode, episode 179, you and Mm -hmm. I struggled to accurately describe the pans (laughs) that we felt like our shokupan should have been made in. And we variously said things like straight up and down and (laughs) perfectly rectangular. We danced all around it, but we couldn't put our finger on the actual name. Thank goodness for the listeners. They had no trouble letting us know that what we were talking about was a Pullman loaf pan. Of course. Yeah, and as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, that does sound familiar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I looked it up, and I did order one. I was thinking about it and pondering it, and I just decided to go for it. So I have ordered one. I'm super excited about it. Oh, great. And then I started thinking about why is it called a Pullman loaf pan? Next question, right? Yeah, there's only two things that I know that use the word Pullman. One is the city in eastern Washington, where Washington State University is. That's mm-hmm. Pullman, Washington. So I thought, right. well, I guess it could be from that area. And the other thing that I knew there was a Pullman train or a yeah Pullman car. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. So I had a feeling that it was probably that. But again, I didn't take the time to look it up. And then in the mail came my new copy of Midwest Made by Shauna Seaver. Yay! And Stefan, this was the cookbook that you actually said that you wanted to get. And I jumped the gun and I think got it before you. You have. So I'm going to be waiting with bated breath for your review. I mean, if Donut Loaf is any indication, it's a winner. (laughs) Yes. And so far, flipping through it, everything looks like a winner. And then there I am. And on page 254, she has a recipe for a Pullman loaf. And she gives some history about it where she says that it's also called a pandemie. And Mm -hmm. I did see that on the Amazon product that they also called it a pandemie loaf pan. And it has European roots going back to the 1800s. And the special thing about this pan is that it's a lidded pan. So it has a top you slide onto it. Yes. And that traps steam and turns out a loaf that has minimal crust. And so the loaves, because of those straight sides, are perfectly square or rectangular and nice and soft and easy to slice. And in the Midwest, it was called a Pullman loaf because during the railroad boom of the mid to late 1800s, the Pullman Car Company started baking bread in their compact kitchens on the trains. Fresh bread on your train travel. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Oh, my, how times have changed. 
I almost want to like book an overnight trip just to see if they still do it. It says that the square-shaped pandemie was a superb fit for these tiny kitchens because Mm -hmm. since the bread wasn't allowed to get that domed top, they could fit twice as many loaves into the smallest of storage spaces. Oh my gosh. I'm completely enamored of the Pullman loaf now and I cannot wait to get my pan and start baking some things in it. So stay tuned, listeners, and thank you for the heads up. We always appreciate it when you let Stefan and I know when you have more information about something we're talking about. I love it. It just seems so romantic and old-fashioned, and I wish we could play our little choo-choo music right now, too. (laughs) Andrea, oh my gosh, Andrea, I'm having a brainwave about a month devoted to food that used to be served on trains. Oh, and airplanes. We could do airplanes, too. Oh, my gosh. Mm, Taking a note. Thank you. (laughs) Travel (laughs) treats coming in 2021. (laughs) I love it. Well, Andrea, speaking of another 20 for 20 resolution, we have been supplying kind of pantry purge, clutter clearing tips all year as part of one of our baking resolutions. And You know, lots of people are going through their pantries periodically. You've heard us talk about that, gosh, you know, since first season, definitely. Check your expiration dates. It's really important on things like spices and extracts. And it's especially important on yeast. So many of us are making more homemade bread these days, and it's just not one you can mess around with. And I think you have a firsthand experience with this, Andrea. I do. I had some bread that... I just couldn't get to rise, and I was messing around in my kitchen and trying to figure out, did I have it in a spot that had a draft, or had I added water that was too hot and maybe killed the yeast, and I... Right. Yep. So many variables. Yes. I finally went and looked at my yeast bottle, and on the side, right there on the side, it said, expiration date, June 2017. Oh, it was real old, not just a little bit expired. So what had happened is I typically buy two types of yeast, uh, the regular active dry yeast and then the instant quick rise Mm -hmm. yeast. Yeah. And until we started making Alexandra Stafford's peasant bread, I used the quick rise yeast very little. I almost always use the Mm -hmm. active dry yeast. And Mm -hmm. so it's just one of those things that kind of kept getting pushed to the back of my pantry. And in my head, I just really thought that it was just as fresh as the active dry yeast, which I had continued to use and replenish. But um, no, it wasn't. And I'm saying my pantry. It's actually my refrigerator. I keep my yeast in the drawers of my shelf in my refrigerator. And those were pretty full. And it was, you know, kind of tucked away. So Check your yeast, people. If things aren't rising the way they should, check your box or your bag or your jar and look at the expiration date. And you know, Andrea, yours is a pretty extreme example of being kind of like three years out of date. But I've had them be only a month and I I was like, nah, you know, I'm going to push it and it wouldn't work. So it's one that I think, I think you can kind of fudge it on some other things, but this is one you want to pay attention to. No, and I think especially as we're watching our ingredients, a lot of us look at an expiration date and think, oh, okay, I'm going to risk it. You know, I, I want yeah. to go ahead yeah. and still try that. But if yeah. you risk it on the yeast, you've now wasted, who knows, three, four, five cups of flour. And, you know, that's not good. And maybe an egg if you're doing yep. an enriched dough. I mean, yeah, all kinds yeah. of stuff. So it's definitely worth it in that case. And, you know, you can sprinkle it on your food waste bucket or you don't have to just put it in the trash. Right. You can uh, yeah. add mm-hmm. it to your compost. Yeah. Yes. The gift that keeps on giving. 
speaking of the Pullman pan, let's take a look now at the review of our first entry in Japanese Sweets Month. It is the Shoku pan, or the Japanese fluffy white bread. And this <laughs> recipe comes from Shihoko over at Chopstick Chronicles. Why don't you go ahead and start out and tell us how this turned out for you? Andrea, Shoku pan was a first in many ways for me. <laughs> We talked last week, neither one of us had any experience with this milk bread, which has really become this worldwide phenomenon, this very soft, very kind of light and airy milk bread recipe. Mm -hmm. And so everything was new to us. And I, listening back to last week when we were introducing it, I sound kind of like stunned almost when I'm talking through this recipe. But it was just very different, you know? And the other thing that was very interesting is how quickly this disappeared in my house. So (laughs) (laughs) setting a world record for disappearance. So let's talk through the recipe, the ingredients, and then how you get to that delicious finished product. Perhaps the most, the singular most unique thing about this bread to me was making the udonne, and that is the mixture of the bread flour and the boiling water that you make the day ahead. And it, Andrea, it kind of turns into a paste. Now that's interesting. Mine was not a paste; it was more of a dough. And I did have to make a substitution here. I didn't have any bread flour. And the recipe calls for 50 grams of bread flour and 40 Mm -hmm. mils of boiling water above 90 degrees Celsius, which converted is 194 degrees Fahrenheit. So clever. I made a substitution, which I often do when I'm out of bread flour. And that is I use all-purpose flour and add some vital wheat gluten. And I talked about this in our live sourdough chat, but I don't know if I've talked about it on our regular show before. Okay. But this is a substitution. I can always get Vital Wheat Gluten. They sell it at my co-op in the bulk section. And the substitution that I do is one teaspoon of Vital Wheat Gluten for every one cup of all-purpose flour. Okay. Maybe I did a little bit too much of the vital wheat gluten, um, but mine was more like a, a dough ball. And so I, though, decided that that was okay because in step three, it says, add the udine torn into small pieces. So I thought, well, the fact that I could tear mine into small pieces means I did it correctly. But you're saying yours was more pasty-like, more like a roux? Yes. I mean, it was very, very, very sticky. To the point that I was oh. kind of flinging it off my hands. I mean, I guess I, I, I guess, <laughs> I guess I could still what I would call tear it into small pieces, but it was a okay. it was a task. Um, and and I guess there wasn't a lot of indication if that was going to be sticky or how that was going to be. And since I hadn't made it before, I just thought, okay, well, this must just be kind of a you know tricky part of yeah. of the of the recipe. So then what you're doing is taking that, tearing it into small pieces, and then putting it in with your bread ingredients, which is your bread flour, some instant yeast, sugar salt, unsalted butter at room temperature, and some milk. And Andrea, I let my KitchenAid do the bulk of my work on this bread, and it worked great for me. Oh, heck yeah. Me too. I mean, we're talking about a full 20 minutes of kneading. So I warned my family that there was going to be some noise for the next 20 minutes. And now I just want to point out that first step, the first 10-minute knead does not include the butter. Yes. That's part of the second 10-minute knead. 
I tore my Udine into small pieces, and I made a note here that it it tore easily into 10 small pieces. Again, I didn't know. This recipe is extensive, but it's not – what's the word? Well, it's not very detailed. It's not. That's a good yes. word for it, right? Yes. So, for example, you know, add the Udine torn into small pieces, like two, five, ten. I don't know. Yeah. I did ten. Yeah. This bread turned out so fabulous that everything I did, I feel like, is how I will continue to do it. But if anyone knows if I should have done things differently, feel free to speak up. I have that same feeling, Andrea. I was really flying blind, but the end result turned out wonderfully. Mm-hmm. So you've right, done your right. two needs and then you do your first rise. So you put the dough into the greased bowl, let it rise for one hour at about 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Of course, Andrea, I used Alexander Stafford's wonderful tip, which I always do when raising dough. And that is I turn the oven on to 400 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 204 uh, Celsius for one minute. Let it preheat and turn it immediately off. It works a charm. It's a nice contained space and it's nice and toasty without being too hot no drafts. And I made a note here that I started rising it on my dining room table. I thought the day was warm enough that I would be fine. And after half an hour, I took a look at it and it hadn't risen at all. And, you know, the instruction says, let it rise an hour until doubled. So I thought, oh, I need to speed this up. So I popped it into the oven with the Alexandra Stafford trick as well. And so mine took an hour and a half total until it doubled. But that putting it in the oven gave it that little extra bit of warmth that it needed to get going. And then you're punching your dough down and cutting it into two equal parts with a scraper and roll them. Now here's one of those other, it's very kind of poetic, but am I supposed to roll them into a ball, into a log? I went with a ball, two dough balls. How about you? I did two dough balls here as well. And I will go ahead and point out that starting with this instruction, as well as especially the instructions that follow, this is when her video came in incredibly helpful. Okay, got it. Yeah. So I will definitely post a link to the video on the show notes because I agree with you. All of these instructions about turning and rectangles and left and right and all this sort of stuff, it it, it makes a lot of sense when you watch the video. It's a little harder to understand when you're reading the instructions. It would have been smart for me. Mm. Well, <laughs> sorry. It's okay. It worked. It totally worked. You've it got did. your dough yep. balls. You take a little bit more bench time. I thought that was just a cute instruction there. It just means to rest the too. dough. You roll it to a rectangle, and then you do this kind of elaborate folding from the center, and then you rotate it, and you roll it again. And I think the picture really worked in my favor there. I could tell what she was going Mm -hmm. for because you kind of make these two dough balls into two little loaves that are nestled together in your pan. And I do want to point out in step nine, she says, fold the dough tightly, not letting any air in toward the center. Mm -hmm from left and right, and then the rolling. I just made a note here on step 10, then rotate the dough and roll it. I wrote very hard to make it tight. So I would roll it, and then I would turn around to grab my pan, and by the time I turned back around, it had unrolled. Me too. Yep, mine was definitely more loose, but again, Mm -hmm. it didn't seem to matter in the end. Yeah, exactly. And my pan was not a Pullman loaf pan, but the sides were fairly straight, so I felt good about using it. You've got that in there. I take a little issue with her step 12 because she says, start to preheat the oven to 185 Celsius, which is 365 Fahrenheit. But then you have to do another rise. And it was a 22, 25-minute uh, rise for me. In the meantime, my oven, you know, it doesn't take that long to preheat my oven. So if you know how long that would take you, I just think you could start preheating your oven a little bit after your rise or during that second rise. 
I have some questions about this step 12 and starting to preheat the oven. I actually thought it might be deliberate. I mean, I do think when you're baking something like bread, Mm -hmm. one thing that really helps is to have a strong, consistent temperature throughout your entire oven. And I've mentioned Ah. on the show before my GE appliance repairman often tells me that he thinks the biggest problem with people in their ovens these days is that they don't let it preheat long enough. So they you know, set the temperature that they want, they hit bake, and the minute the bell goes off, they pop their food in. And he's like, you must understand at that point, there's only one section of the oven that's reading that temperature. Mm. He always said, go another 20 minutes, go another half hour. At that point, every part of the oven will be the temperature that you want. And mm-hmm. when you open the door and you lose that 25 degrees that you lose every time you open the door, it will get back up to temperature much more quickly. So okay. I think that might be deliberate. It didn't work for me, however, because for my second rise, I wanted to use my oven uh, for that nice, warm, non-drafty place because I already knew my first rise didn't do well outside of my oven. And it would have just been nice to have said that if that's what she wanted. Like, I want you to preheat your oven Mm -hmm. for this long on purpose. But instead, it seemed to me more like a timing issue. And that timing wasn't working for me either. But I do get your point. Yeah. 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 Well, I did make a note on step 13 when you do cover the pan Mm. with a wet cloth Mm -hmm. and let it do the second rise until it rises to the size of the bread tin. Mm -hmm. It took me one full hour. How about you? Yeah, it was the better part of an hour. And then you're baking for about 25 to 30 minutes. Mine was a little bit less than that. I think it was about 22 minutes. Remove the bread from the tin and cool it on the rack. Now, here, Andrea... (laughs) (laughs) I think we've talked in the past and we've said sometimes we just have a real problem taking a picture before the treat is gone. Mm -hmm. And I sent you a picture and there was the beautiful loaf and it was. It was absolutely gorgeous. I was really, really pleased with how it looked. Yes. And then um, I believe I sent you a second one and it was like 30 seconds later. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like the debris. That was all that was left were the crumbs. This is good stuff. We had a very similar experience in my household. And I want to back up real quick. One thing I did a little bit differently from watching the video is between step 13 and step 14, after the dough had done its second rise, but before I placed it in the oven, I brushed the tops with some melted butter. (laughs) Thank you for that idea. And um, I did bake mine uh, for 25 minutes, and I put my Therma pin in, and it was 207 degrees when it was done baking. Now, she doesn't say what temperature you need to bake to, but like with my sourdough, I usually bake to 209, so I just decided that that was probably good enough. I mean, that's that's the only thing is I wasn't really sure, like, how do I know if it's done or not? You know, what what's the difference between 25 and 30 minutes if it's just the browning? Yeah, and I did kind of that, like, tapping, and it sounded hollow, and it definitely mm-hmm. looked brown, but it was white yes. bread, so I didn't want it to get overly brown, but then it's hard to know if right. it's cooked in the middle. So good point with the thermopen. Yeah, this... I just have a note here. It says, do you like hot, fresh Wonder Bread? Because, <laughs> you know, Andrea, when is this eaten? That was the only kind of question I had. You know, is it is it because it's like a dessert bread? It's not overly sweet, but there's just like a cakiness about it. And it's so addictive to eat. I mean, we could not stop eating it. The loaf was gone. I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating this. The loaf was gone in under 10 minutes. 
I would not call it a dessert bread. I remember the reason I picked this particular bread versus the Tangzong, the breads with the Tangzong method, is that the author said this is the ubiquitous, everyday, I don't know that she used the term sandwich bread, but I got that feeling. Like, this is the bread they eat all day long in Japan. And I mean, certainly if mine had lasted more than an hour, I would have eaten it all day long. But I had the same experience. It popped out of the pan so nicely. And my husband came in. And so this is funny. Of course, I've been baking sourdough like nobody's business. And as I've been doing that, I've been complaining about our knives. Mm -hmm. And specifically the serrated knife that I use to cut into the sourdough. And my, my sourdough recipe, I bake in a... Dutch oven, a cast iron Dutch oven in the oven. So it gets that nice, really crusty crust, yeah. which I like. Yeah. But then I always have trouble slicing it. So I've been complaining to my husband, you know, you've got to sharpen this knife for me or we need a new knife or, you know, we've been going back and forth. Well, he was standing right next to me as I cut into the shoko pan and he looked at me and he goes, huh, looks like it's not our knife, it's your bread. Oh. <laughs> because this just cuts yeah. so easily. Yeah. and. The wonderful thing is that means you can get nice thin slices. With my sourdough, it's really hard to get a thin slice just because it's 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 so hard to get through the crust. You just can't do these thin slices. The shokopan, her first note at the end of the recipe says that it makes about eight slices. Mine made 10, okay. and they were just a perfect size. So we did... I keep saying we ate it in 30 minutes. That's not entirely true. We ate the portion I allowed my family to eat. (laughs) I did take some slices and put them in a plastic sandwich bag and put it in the refrigerator because I wanted to know what it would taste like the next day. Mm, Wise woman. Yes. And it was so good. And you're right. I mean, it's like Wonder Bread on steroids. I mean, it's just this fresh, delicious. My daughter has asked for it three or four more times since then. She keeps saying, Mom, will you make that fluffy white bread again? Yeah. So. Yeah, it definitely lived up to its billing. I I just can't say enough about how delicious this was. And as soon as I get my Pullman pan, I'm going to start making it again. And this might be one of my new weekly breads. Oh, I just think it's dangerous for me to have this bread around. It's. (laughs) I'm hoping that once I get used to it, I won't have to eat half the pan straight out of the oven. Yeah, well. You know, the other thing this reminded me of was Hawaiian rolls, you know, uh, ubiquitous. And of course, like Japanese and Hawaiian culture has a lot that's very similar. And that did make me think of of those. And I have a hard time not eating those just until, you know. um, Yes. And and the the recipe was, I mean, we've alluded to that, the the kind of poetry of the recipe and Mm -hmm. some of the vagueness of it, which on your first pass through makes it perhaps a little frustrating or or vague but i think it's one of those breads that you're just going to get it down and it will be second nature to you and then then you'll have your own kind of method for what you'll know what she means and what works for you and so i do think that this is a bread that just gets easier the more and more you make it you know either it makes just enough or just doesn't make enough depending on where you're coming <laughs> from <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly could double it. That would not be a problem. True. Yeah, this, um, uh, I, yeah, what a bread. I also saw some other recipes online for this that did not include the tablespoon of sugar. So hmm. if you found it to be a little too sweet, you could certainly cut back on that. Well, I think this was an amazing first entry into our Japanese Sweets Month, and I really thank you for oh, finding that too. one. 
I am thrilled with it as well. A little while back, we posted a message in our Facebook group about what recipe can you make by heart? Mm. And I am hoping that I soon will be able to proudly list Shokupan <gasps> as one of those because I really would like to make this one of my regulars. It's a mid-year 20 for 20. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Well, Andrea, this week, let's hope for more deliciousness. We are doing a Japanese chocolate truffle. This comes from food blogger June at maybe my most favorite blog name ever, June and Tonic. I know. That was so perfect. So, Andrea, on the surface of these truffles, I have to say they don't strike me as particularly Japanese. Do you have some history on what makes them one of Japan's favorite candies? I do have a little bit of history. So first of all, it's called a nama chocolate, and that is translated as the word raw. So okay. when you look at the ingredients, you get an idea. I mean, we're just looking at some good dark chocolate, a little bit of cream, some butter, some optional Kahlua or brandy, okay. and some cocoa powder. Right. But when I looked it up, it said that as early as the 1930s, a chocolate called Pave de Geneva was coming from Geneva, Switzerland, okay. and that this is a very close sibling to the Nama chocolate. Got it. And and that's what, you know, when I was looking at it, I thought to myself, well, this is just ganache. Mm. And, you know, I do love to have some leftover ganache and keep it in the fridge and then just eat it with a spoon. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> was pretty excited about this. The Royce brand is a famous chocolatier in Japan. I have not been to Japan, Stefan, have you? I have not. No, it's no. still on okay. my bucket list. Yeah. Okay, road trip. Um, <laughs> I've, I've heard that they are so popular all throughout Japan, and they say that this is one of those classic airport gifts. Ah, sure. Right. From Japan. But one thing that's pretty tricky about it is the temperature. So it does need to be kept chilled uh, mm -hmm. because when you think about it, it's just, you know, chocolate, cream, and a little bit of butter. Right. And it sounds like if you buy it at the store, they give you a thermal insulated bag so that you can travel uh -huh. with it and keep it cold because otherwise it would lose its form. Yeah, and I wonder if that is also why you are dusting with cocoa powder then at the end, because the squares are going to be so soft, you need that kind of grip. You absolutely. Okay. They also say that it expires more quickly than regular chocolate, not surprising. So in the stores, every box that is sold is only on the shelf for one month, and that's a much shorter time than regular chocolates. And the ideal storage temperature is much lower, 4 mm. to 7 degrees Celsius, which is lower than what we would normally do. Okay. And also for tasting it, they want you to pull it out of the cold storage and let it sit at room temperature before serving it or eating it. And so there's all sort of these little things that go along with it. It's not as simple as grabbing a jar of ganache and digging a spoon into it. <laughs> I think, you know, it's more about the ritual and just having this aromatic, smooth, kind of melt-in-your-mouth experience. And I mean, you're not wrong, though, about making the ganache. That's what it sounds like. You have your mm -hmm. dark chocolate. You're going to chop that up into your small bite-sized pieces. Then you've heated your cream and butter until it's, you know, starting to steam. And then you pour that mixture over your chocolate. You're stirring it until it melts. Mm -hmm. And then you line a baking tray with parchment and pour the chocolate paste onto yes. the tray. And then you're freezing it. Um, so about two to three hours of time in the freezer and then slicing it and then suggesting using a hot knife to cut those into the squares. And then, as you just mentioned, um, dusting with the cocoa powder and storing these in the refrigerator. So, whew, 
Yeah, from white bread to dark chocolate. (laughs) What a week. (laughs) We're covering the spectrum. A couple of things I want to make note of if you're going to bake along with this. Use the very best ingredients you can find when you make this. There are very few ingredients in this. And so when it says good dark chocolate, go ahead and spend a little bit extra. Use a really good cream. A lot of the recipes that I found did not include butter. This Mm -hmm. particular one did. And this is called one of those copycat recipes. So it's interesting when you're reading a copycat recipe, everyone's trying to replicate something that they know what they're trying to make it taste like. I, of course, have never had one. So I I can't attest to, you know, whether or not what we do is going to taste like the original. But I do want to point out that this particular recipe – has 500 grams of chocolate and 350 milliliters of the heavy cream mm-hmm. and the inclusion, the small amount of butter, the 30 grams of butter. A lot of other recipes do not include the butter. And many of the recipes talk about the ratio of chocolate to cream as, you know, that's sort of the most closely guarded secret. And so oh, I found okay. some that said they were a one-to-one ratio, some that said they were a one to two ratio, you know, it just was all over the board. The information that I found about the actual product says, the perfect recipe of Nama chocolate has the level of moisture maintained at 17%, which is the optimal state to balance flavor and form. Now, I don't have a moisture tester, so I I don't know when I make (laughs) this, um, whether or not I'll be successful in hitting that 17%. But I did find a lot of pictures on the internet, and I I just have a feeling it's going to be silkier and smoother Mm -hmm. than a truffle that I'm used to making. And it's obviously going to be firmer than a liquid ganache. But So I'm shooting for somewhere in between there. Yeah, I mean, you can just look at the ratio of the cream to the chocolate. It's mm-hmm. almost as much cream as right. chocolate. So, right. And, and that must be why it's down to the freezer time, too. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's just mm-hmm. going to be silky smooth. Yeah. I can't wait on this one. And I know two, at least two children who can't wait for this one either. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, remember, we will have links to both of these recipes. Today's bake along is the Nama chocolate copycat recipe from June at June and Tonic. And then we also talked about the Shokupan Japanese fluffy white bread from Shihoko at the Chopstick Chronicles. We will put links in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 180 on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Stefan, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that I sometimes have to coax my daughter into trying some of our sweet treats just so she can give me a review. (laughs) Well, this time I'm turning the tables. Oh, yeah? Okay. Tell me all. (laughs) My daughter has absolutely loved mochi ever since she first tried it. And I've just been slower to jump on the bandwagon. Mm. Her favorite way to eat it is in ice cream form, no surprise. And when Whole Foods rolled out their self-serve mochi bars a few years ago, that was it. Whole Foods (laughs) really did turn into whole paycheck for me. (laughs) How about you? Are you and your family big mochi fans? Yeah, my kids are definitely fans of the mochi ice cream as well. And I know we're going to talk about that in a minute. They also got hooked on it back in Seattle, and we've been lucky enough to find it here in London very easily, too. Once I started looking into mochi, I realized I had several misconceptions about this Japanese classic treat. So let's back up a bit and start at the beginning so I can clear some things up. Okay, sounds good. First, let's agree on what mochi is. Simply put, it's a Japanese rice cake. It can be made from steamed white rice, 
glutinous or sticky rice, or even brown rice. Mochi has been around for centuries, and in Japan, they started using it as part of New Year's festivities centuries ago, back between 795 and 1192. Oh my gosh, talk about a heritage bake. (laughs) Right? Mochi is traditionally made in a ceremony called mochisuki. And I'll include a link to some of the videos of the process in our show notes for this episode, which is episode 180. The rice is first soaked overnight and steamed, and then multiple people are involved in this next process. <laughs> one, one person is swinging a mallet and pounding while the other person is turning the rice. It's pretty elaborate, and it definitely falls into the don't try this at home category for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess this means I'll always have to buy my mochi? Well, not necessarily. Mochisuki can be celebrated by just a family or by a whole neighborhood or a community. And because of this, there are many community mochisuki matsuri or festivals. Mm -hmm. The festivals usually include more than just mochisuki. And you can see performances and New Year's games as well. In areas with large Japanese communities, just try doing a quick search for mochisuki festival and you may find one in your area. Stefan, in fact, Bainbridge Island, right outside of Seattle, holds a Mochisuki festival every year. So maybe we can meet there one year. Oh, that would be perfect. But is that my only alternative? I'm not sure I'll be able to time my next trip to Seattle with the Japanese New Year. (laughs) Don't worry. I did find several recipes for making mochi at home in a stand mixer. Your basic ingredients include mochiko, or a glutinous rice flour, Sugar, coconut milk, condensed milk, cornstarch, and a little food coloring if desired. You sift the rice flour, add in the other ingredients, and mix, and then bake the mixture at 450 degrees Fahrenheit for over an hour. Once it's cooled, you can cut or shape your mochi. Okay, that sounds doable. Good to know. All right, now on to flavor. I have always thought of mochi as a sweet treat. But it turns out mochi can be used in savory foods as well, such as a topping for miso or dropped into hot udon noodle soup. You can also grill mochi, wrap a piece of seaweed around it, and enjoy it dipped in some soy sauce. I mean, it sounds so versatile. It's making me think about the rice cakes we buy in the store. While I typically use them as a base for spreads like peanut butter or preserves, I occasionally do put savory toppings like herbed cream cheese or avocado and sesame seed. Exactly. Another misconception I had about mochi was that it was always in those big, soft, round shapes. But mochi can be cut into rectangular blocks, triangles, flower petals, or another of my favorites, formed into small balls and placed on a stick. (laughs) Andrea, why is it that any food placed on a stick just tastes better? (laughs) Okay, so now I know mochi isn't always sweet and it isn't always round. Anything else I'm missing? Well, you may have already known this, but I thought mochi and mochi ice cream were the same thing, but they're not. Mochi ice cream is a fusion dessert, an ice cream center wrapped in mochi dough. Mm. It was invented in the early 1990s by Frances Hashimoto, and it first debuted in Hawaii under her Mikawa label. It captured 15% of the novelty ice cream market in only four months. Whoa. Originally made with just vanilla, chocolate, or strawberry ice cream, it quickly expanded to include more exotic flavors such as matcha green tea, red bean, plum wine, black sesame, Kona coffee, and mango. Oh, one of each, please. But seriously, you're telling me no one thought of doing this before the early 1990s? 
Well, there are a few predecessors to mochi ice cream, or at least the concept, and they're both sweetened stuffed rice cakes. Daifuku and manju are mochi, which are commonly featured with an adzuki bean filling. Oh, isn't that anko? Yes, you remember okay. that from last week when we yes. learned about onmitsu. When it comes to sweets, Andrea, I've got a memory like an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> well, now when it comes to mochi, I've got the appetite of an elephant. <laughs> Listeners, we'd love to hear your experience with mochi. Drop us an email at hosts at preheatedpodcast.com or post a message in our Facebook listeners group. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning and next week we'll see if copycat versions of Royce's truffles is as good as the real thing. Then we'll tackle an intriguing breakfast pastry brought to our attention by listener Candy. And we'll explore the classic Japanese sweet ingredient, bean paste. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please rate, review, and recommend us on your favorite platforms. Our thoughts are with you and your families and loved ones. We hope our show has provided a bit of respite when you've needed it most. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening. Be well and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. I feel a sneeze coming, so I'm just going to pause here for a minute. Let's see if it passes.